Welcome to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. The SLA is a nonprofit, international, professional organization whose common goal is the understanding, advancement, and ethical practice of sports law. With over 1,000 current members consisting of practicing lawyers, law educators, law students, and other professionals with an interest in law relating to professional and amateur sports, the organization has a wonderful membership filled with experience, insight, and knowledge giving podcast listeners a peek behind the curtain of the sports law world. For more information about the SLA, visit sportslaw.org. Today's episode is A Fresh Perspective on Negotiations, where current president of the SLA and longtime board member Bobby Hacker sits down with Maury Teherapur to explore how taking in a holistic approach focused on the relationship and communication can lead to more successful negotiations and is the theme of her first book, Bring Yourself, how to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiate Fearlessly. Maury is a globally recognized executive with over two decades of negotiation, diversity and inclusion, and sports industry experience. She teaches negotiation and dispute resolution at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, where she serves on the faculty of the Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department and is a seven-time recipient of awards for excellence in teaching. And now, here's your host, Bobby Hacker. This is Bobby Hacker, president of the Sports Lawyers Association. And today in the SLA podcast, we have the pleasure of talking with longtime SLA member and supporter, Maury Teherapur. She teaches negotiation and dispute resolution in the legal studies and business ethics department at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and is a founder of the Wharton Sports Business Initiative, also the Goldman Sachs 10,000 women program. Today, we're going to talk with Maury about a number of things, but it mostly derives from her book that is just beyond one year since publication called Bring Yourself, How to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiate Fearlessly. And for a sort of a 50,000 foot jumping off comment, it seems that you take a much more holistic approach to negotiating than as if it were some sort of defined program of rules and regulations. Hi, Bobby. First, let me say hello. Thanks for having me on. And before I get fired by Goldman Sachs, I taught in the program. I didn't found it. So there's that. But uh, I do take a little bit more of a holistic approach to negotiations. I think it's the way I, I define it. It's the way I look at negotiations. To me, negotiations has never been about transactions. It's been about relationships and communication and, you know, finding your voice, using negotiations as an opportunity to strengthen relationships. And, and a lot of the times that we negotiate, we're actually negotiating with ourselves. So being able to be introspective and finding a better connection to yourself, making better decisions. And even when it's sort of you're sitting across the table from somebody, I still feel like it's, it's most successful when it's based on the strength of relationships. So I think that's why I look at it a little differently, that I'm not going to tell my readers, do this, this, and this, and you're always going to be successful. It's more like, look at yourself, think about your values, think about how you want to connect with people. And that's where it all begins. You know, given the fact that it is Women's History Month, I can't ignore one of the early statements you make in your book, which is basically about how gender directs our stories. and. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's really a critical, a unique part about your book and how you talk about that. As a matter of fact, as you compare certain 
how certain women may respond. And we'll get into that a little bit. But generally, I think that's a really interesting thesis that you have in your book. Yeah, a lot of the way that I look at gender negotiations, there's certainly a whole lot of research in this area. So there's a body of evidence that tells us things like women aren't as comfortable coming to the table to negotiate. Women are sort of guided under the premise of what society thinks of them and how we're supposed to behave in our negotiations. And as such, that affects our performance or even our our desire to even negotiate in the first place. We oftentimes don't even know that something is negotiable. We are almost supposed to be told that it's negotiable. But outside of that, there's a lot of myths. There's myths around women can't negotiate as well as men, and that's not the truth at all. In fact, when women represent somebody else in a negotiation, so acting on behalf of someone as a fiduciary or as an attorney or agent, women tend to do really well. And part of that is because we're and better even than men in, in those types of studies, comparative studies. And part of that is that we're not in that in that moment, we're not negotiating for ourselves. So we can act with a lot more confidence. We're not necessarily worried about what somebody thinks of us because we are representing somebody else. We're sort of in that caretaker position that we're very, very much used to. Um, and there's some distance between us and the subject. So there's a little bit less sort of emotionality associated with it. And I think that that sort of allows us to approach the conversation really methodically and separating ourselves from this notion of, well, what will they think of me? Should I not smile? What should I wear? I mean, all the things that sort of society sort of makes us consider that men really never have to consider when approaching these conversations. And I think that deeply impacts how we negotiate. Certainly it impacts whether we negotiate at all. And I think that that that's where it all starts because that a lot that makes us sort of start telling ourselves different stories about you know again what will they think of me how should i approach this maybe this isn't the right time and those stories that self narrative is really what ultimately hurts us the most and it would be wonderful if we didn't have to worry about those things it would be great if there wasn't such a body of evidence that that really said well we do get judged we are there are biases before we even approach the table. So um, I think I think I wanted to communicate that because really the premise of my book, Bobby, is anybody can be a great negotiator. It has nothing to do with gender. It has nothing to do with style. And so at the end of the day, I don't think it's a gender issue so much as it is sort of societal mindset issue. There was one line that just jumped out at me early in the book. And it made me think not about women or men, but about negotiators generally, and those who refuse or can't really accept criticism in the course of a negotiation. And the line you used was something like, people who are looking for weaknesses rather than celebrating strengths. And that just leapt out to me as one of the great lessons you could give anybody that's getting into a negotiation. It's a so positive forward of a thought. Yeah, and that all goes to the heart of, you know, sort of like imposter syndrome and self-talk, which is, by the way, not just the issue that women struggle with, but studies show us that men struggle with it as much, except men just don't talk about it. But that is this notion of, you know, what you say to yourself, right? The narrative that you have for yourself. And things like, you know, even, so I teach for a living, obviously, but when I get one 
bad evaluation or, or not even bad, just mediocre. Let's say somebody makes a comment that just kind of sticks with me because it's more of a criticism. That comment will stay with me for weeks, if not months. And it's like one out of 38 or 46 or whatever. Meanwhile, the other 37 or 45, which were, she's great. This was great. This was life-changing. This was wonderful. You know, I sort of just gloss over those things. And I'm so stuck on what was the one thing that I was supposed to fix and why couldn't I do it? And what did this person think? And I think that's just human nature. We, we sort of, for those of us who really have this issue of, of the negative self-talk, the, the, that narrative, we tend to hold on to criticism. We tend to look for fault. And especially for women, if we start celebrating our wins and focusing on those things before we even come to the table on that, the self-talk becomes, look how many times I've been successful at doing this. Look how many contracts I've been able to get from these large clients. Look at the deals that I've closed. We don't say that. And I think part of that is because we don't want to appear egotistical or carry too much of that confidence into the conversation with us, again, because we're afraid of being judged. So it's like this tightrope you have to walk. But the truth is, man, woman, it doesn't matter. To be proud of what your accomplishments doesn't mean that you're a braggart. To be proud of your accomplishments means that you've worked really hard and you have the skills with which you can navigate this conversation. So celebrate that. Don't be stuck in the negative so much. Celebrated internally with little humility. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing about humility, by the way. A lot of people, when you use that word, especially sort of when I do conferences for women, people are very much against the word humility being sort of associated with, let's say, salary conversations for, for women, particularly, because a lot of times they think, well, why do we always have to have humility? Why do we always have to be humble? And that's sort of like degrading basically our confidence, right? We have to constantly be thinking, you know, don't be too, again, too, too confident because you may appear egotistical. And, you know, the truth is that I think that people can have humility and have confidence. So it's this notion of like confident humility, if you will, the, the notion that I know a lot, I'm really skilled, I have a lot of experience but I don't know everything because nobody knows everything. So until this conversation starts and proceeds, you know, I may feel really confident, but I'm going to feel really confident about what I don't know either. And, and as well, I mean, and, and really keep an open mind and open heart and have perspective so that you can maybe take a different path. You can learn through the conversation and you're not stuck on what you assumed was the right path, the right direction, the right outcome. So I think you can sort of balance. I think the people who are really, really confident are also humble enough to know that there's a lot to learn. Which brings me to the next sort of, I think it flows naturally between trying to show you're successful in a negotiation and not really necessarily tooting your horn, yet you're confident because you've been down this road before. But you take a sharp turn, people do, and you address this when you talk about apologies. And how people will get into just, the, it's, it seems like a huge trap in negotiating on any level. You know, if it's an interpersonal relationship, a business relationship, it seems to undermine your strengths. Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing wrong with apologizing when you know that you were clearly at fault for something. But, you know, those of us that, again, 
may struggle with this notion of confidence and, and that sort of narrative, that self-narrative that's not as positive as it should be. Or it's not really reflective of your skills and your knowledge. You know, I, I often tell women when I teach at a conference or speak to just women's group, and I'll use women as an example here because I've seen it happen to plenty of my male students as well. But, you know, I say just go into your email and go into search and just type in the words, sorry, or I'm sorry, and see what comes up. And time after time, or the word just, that's equally as bad, by the way, where I'm just writing to ask you for, or I was just thinking, or sorry that this email is so late. And I find myself doing it all the time, but it's like over and over and over again. And part of what the word just or all this apologizing does is it immediately puts you at a disadvantage. And the word just makes it appear that whatever you're about to say is not that important. And I feel like, again, that's like this, this notion of make sure that you don't come across as too confident and too egotistical. Like it's, it's just so weird that people actually have to think about these things. And so much of it just basically seeps into our brains, our mindset that we can't let it go. And so it becomes a, the way that we communicate. It becomes a way that we write these emails. It becomes a way that when we approach people and you said interpersonal relationships where it happens all the time, that you feel like to avoid conflicts, maybe I'll be the one to compromise and then you compromise and then you compromise and you compromise and you find yourself at sort of the short end of the stick every single time. You know, a lot of that again comes from the notion of maybe just maybe I'm not good enough or maybe just maybe I don't deserve this. And that's a really deep rooted thing. So it's that, that le- it's a, it appears like a big leap for people, but it certainly has its roots in those sort of the origins of that, right? Wherever that comes from. It's interesting because as lawyers, you know, we have this ethical duty to zealously represent our clients. But to my mind's eye, law schools in particular fail to really discuss what zealous representation means. And I think it's developed sort of a perverse connotation over time and loses sight of what I think a big focus of, of your thesis is, is about relationships and how when you cross that line, you destroy a relationship. And when a relationship is destroyed or not able to be created, it's a zero sum at that point. Absolutely. I think that, that what we forget is that basically everything is about relationships. Every, every interaction that we have with people, you know, I don't even believe in this notion of, well, I'll never see this person again. So it doesn't matter, you know, how I behave, but in, in the, in the, the sense of attorneys representing their clients, most of these interactions are going to be with people that maybe they'll see again, another lawyer that they'll have a relationship with, another agent that they come across. And to think that you would give yourself permission to behave a certain way, that would basically say, I don't really care what happens after today. I just need to get this here today. This has got to be the only thing I'm focused on. I think that that immediately takes every interaction into more of a transactional transactional approach than it does in terms of relationship in perpetuity, everything can be long-term approach. And so 
I just don't see the benefit of that. I don't see the benefit of thinking that all there is to it is the outcome of today's negotiations. When we tend to, you live long enough, you tend to see somebody in another realm, in another position, at another company at some point in your life. And if you leave that good impression, then you don't have to work so hard every time. People come to you because you have a certain reputation. People work with people because of who they are, not the company that they represent and how you leave individuals feeling when, when you sort of depart from these negotiations and what they remember of you. And I think those things are really important and particularly for, for lawyers. And by the way, it's not mutually exclusive. You can represent your clients zealously, like you said, and at the same time, try to build a relationship with your counterpart because people react better to respect. They react better when they know that somebody's listening to them. They react better when there's sort of a mutual approach to this that says, let's try to get the best deal for both of us. It just, to me, it makes sense. To me, it's so rational. And yet, you know, again, there are myths, Bobby. There's a ton of myths out there that I think um, surround this, this conversation around negotiations. I think the problem is, is that because I think on a more traditional level, people look at lawyers in the context of Perry Mason, as it were, yeah. and someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. But it always seemed to me that in a negotiation, winning and losing is not the end game. Yeah. And that's what I think is lost so often and causes a lot of deals to fall apart because somebody wants to win. And that's really not what the end game should be. No, because, you know, I think that, that to some extent people are so focused on outcomes that they forget the value of the process. And if you think about, about negotiations from the perspective of sort of this elegant dance, if you will, you know, you take a step forward, they take a step back and you go back and forth. Then the reality is, it's the process that really matters because it's the process that allows you to maybe spend more time getting to know one another, maybe spend more time humanizing the approach, maybe come up with more innovative perspectives than to hurry up and close whatever deal it is that you're closing because there's there could be more to it that you haven't even uncovered or even thought about. And so when you're so focused on let's just get this deal it doesn't allow for you to sort of slow walk the process and think about whether other opportunities you may have. And I, I just don't think any good deal comes quickly. I think that there's a value proposition to this notion of relationships and, and doing that dance and getting to know one another and problem solving and it's collaborative problem solving. It's not win-lose. And those are the things that, again, extend this conversation out in perpetuity because that person will come back to you. They'll say, oh, Maury's not a complete and total jerk. I never want to see this attorney again. I hope we avoid them at every turn. And say, oh, you know what? She was really reasonable. We got a really good deal, I think, on both sides. You know, this is going to be okay. We can probably work out a really good deal. And I think even your client at that point feels probably pretty good about it. So it's not, it's not the battle royale that people try to make it out to be. And certainly if the negotiations is just win-lose, then I don't think you're maximizing the outcome, to be honest with you. I think you're probably, to some extent, leaving something on the table, even if it's your reputation. Which, which brings me to one of the things that I really jumped out at me and I think is, is a really important lesson that you talk about, which is fear of no. Yeah. 
And that seems to be something that prevents people from negotiating, prevents people from coming up with a process. And, and I love the concept of process because it's not, it's, it's an art, it's not a science. And I think that's an important distinction that you really lay out well in your book. Yeah. So, you know, we call this sort of interest-based bargaining, right? So when you come to the table, when you're about to begin your negotiations, that there should be a whole lot of time prior to even the actual deal itself, that there should be a conversation about getting to even know the other side, right? Knowing what makes them tick, understanding their interests, knowing what they desire, what they want out of this outcome, knowing what even motivated them to come to this conversation. And I think that's really powerful because it gives you insight. It gives you deep insight to that person. And because of that, it's sort of like the classic know your audience, right? So you know where they're coming from in this conversation. Maybe you know something about their mood that day, how open they might be. You know, are they more of an introvert or extrovert? How will you communicate with them? And that's sort of the art of communications right there. But if you spend that time getting to know somebody and knowing what their wants and needs and desires are out of this particular conversation, right, their interests, you can start better thinking about the way you're going to present your deal to them or your wants, your interests. Because what you can do at that point is think about where your interests may overlap, where there might be similarities, right? Where there might be opportunities that you haven't even thought to explore that just by hearing this person and listening to them became a lot more clear to you. And that opens up like a whole new world, a whole new conversation. And the truth is that when we do that, I mean, we put off the actual deal itself, right? That, that sort of that opening offer. When you put that off long enough and you get all this other information, then the conversation becomes less about you walking in and being like, this is what I want. It's more about getting to know one another's interests and maybe even similarities where you can find deals that will work for both of you, but also maybe they'll uncover deals that your counterpart would have said no to originally, but because you've spent this time talking, they found some benefit to this other opportunity. Or if at the end of that conversation, you both realize, well, none of this really works, right? This was, this was not the way we should approach this conversation, but because it's been such a good conversation, right? There, it hasn't been, again, this sort of headbutting and conflict. It's been sort of problem solving and open-mindedness then if they say no to what you proposed, that no quickly becomes, you know what, no to this, but maybe yes to something else. So we've spent a lot of time today. We've thought about a lot of options. Why don't we take some of this back and come back to the table next week? I've learned a lot. You've learned a lot. There might be a better opportunity. And, and that, that no just softens itself. It just becomes no to this, maybe yes to something else, or maybe just maybe. And I think that that takes the fear away. I think that when you stop thinking about it as a transaction and, and you offer your counterpart just one thing and one thing only, or you hear them give you one thing and one thing only with respect to deal, then it's sort of a black and white issue at that point. It's a black and white conversation. There's no room to maneuver. There's no room to innovate. And I think that is when no is scary because no is no. No is no, this isn't going to work for me. And there's been no communication outside of that particular route and that position that they've taken. So I can understand why people are afraid because it feels like rejection. But if you set this up in a way that says, you know what, we're going to find a way. It may be totally different than what we think, 
let's explore this, then no just says, ah, let's try something else. And I think that speaks to, you know, again, going back to process, another point that I think really jumps out at me is that take a breath moment. You know, the take a breath moment in a negotiation and you say simply, you can't rush a deal. And that is so critically important because, you know, in my experience, part of the process is you want in a negotiation, everybody should get something, right? And if you have a, especially when you've developed a relationship with someone and you know they're always going to ask for a particular deal point. You include that, but maybe you include something else and that you know that you may have to give on, but you're okay giving on it because then the other side is sort of in a position of saying, I got something and there was a quid pro quo of sorts in the negotiation. But that happens when you're not rushing to close a deal because that never feels right. Yeah. And, and again, that's that, that give and take is only possible when you really understand what the other person wants, right? What, what, again, their interests are and truly what your interests are, because you may find in the process of this conversation, again, if you prolong it, if you spend some time and it's not rushed, you may find that the very thing they want is something so easy for you to give up. And the thing that is most important to you, your client, you know, your counterpart, whoever this is, is something that they don't really care about. Like it appears that it's something really easy for them to give up and it would make you whole and make them whole to some extent. Right. So when people say win-win, it doesn't mean I get everything I want and you get everything you want in the ideal world that could happen. But most of the time, win-win just means, you know what? I got enough and you got enough. And this really actually works. And maybe Next time we come to the table, we'll see if there are other opportunities to make this deal even better. It's sort of that getting past yes. But that that understanding of, of ways that you can both benefit from this conversation is really crucial because it doesn't become this sort of, you know, I benefit at your expense or you benefit at my expense. It's just that we sort of work this out so that we can both benefit from it. Yeah, you know, in my career, people have, often said, and I generally have not agreed with them, about, you know, a certainty and an assuredness when you go into a negotiation, which I think it's it's important that when you enter a negotiation, you've done your homework, you have the research, you have facts. But I really like the concept of asking questions as a negotiating tool. And some people see that as a weakness. To me, it lets the other side know that you've really given this consideration and you really want to flush it all out. Right. And the reason why asking questions is so important, it goes back to that sort of confident humility that we talked about earlier, that, you know, to understand that there's maybe a lot that you haven't found in your preparation or you haven't uncovered, or maybe there are some things that are really important that that you would only know if you ask the right questions and approach this in a way that you have sort of maximum curiosity. I think the best negotiators, far none, are, are incredibly curious, right? Always have a learning mindset and they're not sort of stuck to this one outcome, this one path, this one position. And so with that, 
if you spent a good amount of time just listening, there's a lot that we can uncover. And and I think that a lot of times when people think about negotiations, they're like, oh, you're a great communicator, right? You you can make a great argument. I think it's also that you're a really great listener because through that process, you got so much information that you can now make your argument more, more thoughtfully, more methodically, more persuasively even. And that takes time. That takes time. But it also takes this notion of, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Just listen, learn to listen. I don't think we do that very well. Yeah, I think it's also really important, as you know, that there's a difference between being focused as a listener and not listening because you heard something and all you want to do is reply. And we've all been in negotiations where we're laying something out. And if somebody would follow the process of our argument, they would see how we're getting from point A to point B. But so often in a negotiation, you'll find the other side, they get focused on element A in a six-part discussion, and all they want to do is bark about A, and they don't even listen to B through E. Right. Yeah. Listening is actually, I'm, I'm feeling like it's becoming a lost art because of the fact that we rely so much on technology to communicate these days. And people have like whole relationships by text, which is just so crazy. And so we don't necessarily have to use those skills anymore. And we're distracted all the time. And we're pulled away from sort of where we are at that very moment by a variety of different things. And maybe it's even worse now because we're all on Zoom and we're tired and being distracted is is really just that much easier. So, you know, you have to work really hard, I think, and you have to be very intentional about listening to someone and knowing that the the true listening, true hearing, it's almost like this like level four listening, which is sort of the nirvana of listening when you're using every part of your senses to listen, right? So you're watching them, you have emotional intelligence so that you could pick up maybe on how you're affecting them by the questions you're asking or what you've said. And so you're picking up emotions, you're picking up um, facial expressions, you're picking up all these nuances that are sort of feeding this sort of all this information that's coming at you. And you're not, you're not really defending your position. You're not trying to figure out what next question you should ask. And this one was just sort of a placeholder. You're not, you're not even trying to solve problems right now, right? You are you are there just purely for this notion of let me hear and see everything that they are saying so that that sort of complete source of information can better drive my decision-making. That takes a lot of intention. That takes presence. That takes mindfulness. That takes you being very intentional about shutting everything else off. And I think that, that people really enjoy that, by the way, right? Think about all the times that somebody asks you a question and they, you feel, you get the sense that you're like the most important person to them at that moment. Like they really want to hear what you're saying and how much more open you become as opposed to that person who asks you a question and they didn't even hear what you just said quite evidently by the next question they're asking you, because like you said, they're so focused on that next question that this was sort of just like, let me ask them this. So it warms them up so I can ask them the real question that I want to ask them. And we sense that too. So then we become more close to it. It's almost like, well, you don't really deserve all my information or you just don't really deserve my openness, right? There's, 
there's that sense of like you pull back a little bit because you know that you weren't paid attention to. So I think that if we talk about negotiations being problem solving, you want somebody to be as open as possible. You want somebody to divulge information to you. And the only way I think people do that is they feel like you deserve it because you're listening to them and and you're focused on them. Which brings us to, to my mind's eye, one of the sort of lost senses, and it may be because of technology, but the paucity of empathy that we seem to find in the negotiating process when it's really important because, again, it's not about winning or losing. It's about everybody being okay. And because ultimately what's and in most negotiations, somebody wants something from somebody else and the somebody else is either inclined to give it or would be interested to talk about it. And yet without understanding, you know, the relationship that each of the people have to why, why that guy wants it or why that person might want to get out of it, it would seem to be a tremendous block to getting any deal done if you don't have that sense once you step into the room or on the phone or in your Zoom. Yeah, and again, this goes back to myths, right, which I think there's a lot of them around negotiations. But one of the, these myths is that empathy makes you appear weaker. And I think it's because, I hate hearing that, by the way, but I think a lot of times people equate empathy with compassion. And, you know, I I don't think you necessarily have to take on someone's pain, somebody's experiences, and personalize them, which I think is where compassion really goes. Empathy to me means sort of an extreme sense of curiosity that, that is based on the fact that people... Who are, who are in the, in the middle of this deal-making, right, in the middle of this negotiations, are making decisions based on life experiences, their values, their perspective. And that didn't just happen here. So there's a whole life that they've lived, a whole lot of experiences that they've had that make them who they are and how they react to the situation. So to me, empathy means, you know, I want to know all of that. I want to know, again, what makes you tick. I want to be so curious about you that I can really better understand how you make your decisions so that, again, I can present my side, my argument, my thoughts, my perspective in a way that you will better hear it and understand it. So it's not about you and it's not about what you want to say. It's about them and how they will receive this information. And I think that's just, this is, again, art of communication, right? You're not talking to you know, into a tunnel, you're talking to another human being and it's, there's no echoes necessarily. There's, there's how they will receive this information, how it will stick to them. And that's, that's persuasion at its best. So empathy to me means, no, I'm not asking you to sympathize with them and, and have, you know, sort of the depth of compassion with, which I think gets people into trouble sometimes because they start minimizing their own interests and their own needs. We certainly see this in a lot of interpersonal relationships. Empathy to me means just be really curious, just learn as much as you can. Um, don't judge, don't come in with so many biases that it colors the way you approach this person and get some perspective. There's this, there's this quote I love, which says, even a sheet of paper has two sides, right? There's, there's two sides to everything, right? So stop 
being so quick to make decisions and stop again, trying to rush to the end, sit here, learn, right? Have a learning mindset, be open. And I think the world opens up to you. I, I, just, I just think that there's so much benefit to being empathetic. And it's, it's amazing how over time people think, oh, it weakens you. Oh, you shouldn't really connect with people at that level. Oh, you'll think too much of what they need and minimize your needs. I, I don't, I don't think that necessarily comes from having a great sense of empathy. I think there are other, again, issues associated with those, those folks who put others, others' needs above their own all the time. I don't think it's just a, a sense of extreme empathy. So is, are, are the concepts of mindfulness and being present part and parcel of empathy or are those distinct characteristics? I think you have to be mindful and present to be able to have empathy because, again, what you're doing is you're trying to learn as much as you can about this person sitting across from you. And that includes being empathetic to their emotions at that moment, right? Their state of mind, where they are when you're speaking to them. Has it been a bad day for them? Maybe this is why they're surprising you with the way they're interacting with you. Like there's so much to uncover. And yet we can't necessarily do all that if we're not mindful and we're not present and we're distracted. So I think they sort of have to fit like hand and glove like that they they really have to work together because again if you're distracted you can't hear somebody very well if you're distracted you're not listening very well if you're not mindful you're not watching them and, and picking up nonverbal cues so yeah I, I think they they absolutely complement one another but i think it's it's really been great digging into this i really appreciate your time are there any sort of sort of a 30,000 foot view on negotiating that that you could say somebody comes to you and says you know how do I negotiate you know are there and we've talked about a number of things here and I think about one of the examples in your book you talk about a situation where somebody says to the guy on the other side of the table who he says is everything okay and the guy goes no, it wasn't. I had a really bad day. And you say, well, let's just pick this up tomorrow. And the next day, it seems to flip the entire negotiation. And, th and that seems to be all of these elements that we've talked about. You're not rushing, you're empathetic, you're mindful and present. But in addition to all of those sorts of, of, of realities, in the preparation for negotiation, it seems that we also have to almost be our own devil's advocate and go in and say, this is what we want. What might they want? And I think it's really important to think about what other people might want, not just about the one note singer, me, 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 but to look at the other side and say, well, what might they want? And how can I let them know that I understand it, but we just can't do that, for example? Yeah, I think that again, you know, it's sort of the it's it's best. Negotiations are about relationships and they are about connections. Um, you know, it's it's sort of humanity. Um and I think that if you approach it that way, then you will always consider what the other person is gonna want at the end of 
when this deal is done because you're thinking about it from a perspective of of mutual benefit, right? That's sort of that relationship mindset will will really sort of force you to think about situations from both perspectives. But it also, I think, importantly, forces you to behave a little bit better, right? Have more empathy, be more kind, be respectful. I mean, I don't know where kindness sort of went, was no longer popular or like why that, why in negotiations people think that you shouldn't be kind. It's like likability actually really matters. And, you know, you want people to sort of benefit from this conversation in the sense that they think that you're actually a fairly likable person and they wouldn't mind doing this with you again. And, and maybe the next time they'll be more generous in terms of what they, how they open up to you because this was a really good experience. And so I think that when we think about it that way, and you know, this goes back to the gender conversation, by the way, you know, there are certain characteristics that women have, and these are massive generalizations, by the way, but that notion of being more relationship oriented, having that more of a problem solving mindset, being focused on other people's needs and, and, and wants and interests. I think those really benefit, obviously, women. And I think if women sort of stepped into those things a little bit more, we would really find our power and know that we are, we can be exceptional negotiators, but it is those characteristics. It's that mindset of this is going to benefit us. And that doesn't mean I'll be any less well off if I think that way. That may mean actually that we'll both benefit even more. And this is strategic. It's not me giving up my power, that this is really strategy at its best when you can envision what what that person may may want out of this conversation that allows you to do things like scenario planning even and you're better prepared for this conversation you're you're more thoughtful about it i think all that really matters and so i i don't know i think maybe the best way to to close this out is that i want people to first of all focus on themselves right and and change that self narrative and really think about their values and how they want to be remembered and, and what kind of impression they want to leave on people because reputation matters. But I think that the other part of it is be kind, be, be likable, right? Create the sense of collaboration and think about negotiations in a way that will strengthen again. And I started with this, it will strengthen your relationships as opposed to blow them up and make this sort of you know, the do or die today or never kind of a perspective. I just don't think those benefit us in the long run. Well, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation and talking about your book and, and sort of what it's about, because because I believe it's a really important lesson that people need to learn a little more about. I think we're in, and I, from some of the things you've said, the technology vortex in which we've been forced to live for the last year is in many ways anathema to so many of these lessons because we've taken the personal out so much. But let's all hope as the summer rolls on, we'll be able to get back to it and that people will remember that relationships do matter, kindness matters, and uh Keep your ears open and your mouth shut sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you can get things done with a with a little less tension. Yeah, hope hopefully. I'm optimistic, Bobby. 
I'm a pathological optimist, so I feel that way. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And we really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you in person in the not too distant future. Oh, me too. Hopefully, hopefully SLA in person next year. So I look forward to it. Next year in person. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bobby.